let me first tell you just a little bit about myself. I always find it's helpful to know the person who's doing the speaking so that I know where they're coming from. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my own story. Uh, I grew up in Georgia, so I'm a fellow Southerner, and uh, I'm a Northern transplant, however, so I've been transplanted up into Indiana. But uh, uh, I uh, did my master's degree as a master's of divinity uh, in pastoral ministries with a cognate counseling at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, and uh, did uh, my doctorate there in psychology and counseling. Uh, now, it's a good school, uh, particularly in areas of uh, New Testament study and, and uh, Old Testament studies and the biblical studies and the biblical languages and uh, obviously a lot in terms of church administration and those kinds of ministries. And But what I found is that when I graduated and I started working with people, uh, in fact, I had already begun working with people. I worked five and a half years in a psychiatric hospital in New Orleans and I had a church-based practice there that was part-time as well. Uh, but what I found is that I realized one day after being out for a few years that basically my approach was um, I was I had Christian glasses, but I was working through secular eyes. And that was basically my approach uh, to working with people and working with human problems. And I was going through some struggles myself at one point after having uh, gone to Taylor and working there in Taylor, at Taylor for a few years. And uh, part of my struggle was that uh, uh, I was not seeing a whole lot of improvement in people. Uh, and uh, things just weren't going well personally. I was uh, uh, had some bondages that uh, I was struggling with as well. And uh, it was my habit in class uh, sometimes to, to do a devotion before class. Get this going because I don't want that to revert to me uh, having to log on again. Um, it, but so I was having these struggles, and, and I was doing this devotion, and I was reading from Romans 12:2 this particular day, and uh, it's sort of God ordained uh, actually. Uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And all of a sudden it hit me, and I describe it as sort of a Damascus Road experience. And it hit me that my whole approach, not just to um, to working with people, but even in many of the ways that I was living, that really I was a secularist. Uh, and in fact, I would call myself a Christian secularist at that point. Um, and that I needed to change. And that, that began a journey for me. And uh, uh, I came across some of Neil Anderson's materials and began to read and study. And then God wonderfully brought uh, Marcus's dad, uh, Dr. Tim Warner, into my life, who has mentored me. And uh, I am still on this journey. Um, and uh, so what I present to you today uh, is still in development, quite honestly. And uh, probably will be. In fact, if it ever stops being in development, uh, that's probably not a good thing. And I'll get arrogant at that point. So I don't want you to listen to me if I ever come in and tell you I've got the whole truth. Okay? I just know the whole truth. That's all. I know Jesus. Uh, and he's the whole truth. So, um, so let's begin to look at this. And what I want to do is to give you some background. And so some of this is actually going to be review for you. But I'm going to give it some special application. So the first two sessions, I want to give you some background. And then in the third session this afternoon, 
uh, we'll do some very practical application uh, of this. And I want to present to you uh, some of this. You'll uh, obviously you will have heard before, but I want to present to you an aspect um, that uh, uh, is often not covered in Christian counseling circles, uh, which is uh, the issue of the flesh. And we're going to look at how flesh relates specifically to marital counseling uh, this afternoon. So, but let me give you some background here first. And I don't know if you guys can, can hear this, but I had to add a little drama in here. Um, let's see if this will work for us. Can you hear that? Well, I thought it was a dramatic touch. If we'd had some good speakers there, it would have been great. So, you can hear it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, what I want to do is look at uh, counseling and the origin of, of evil. Um, and uh, look at this. You would think that a person's... Uh, theory of counseling, how they approach counseling would proceed, at least from the Christian, would proceed from their understanding of where evil comes from. I mean, what is it that we're dealing with in counseling? We're dealing with evil and addressing evil, so you would think that it would come right out of their understanding of where evil comes from. What is the origin of evil? But I would tell you, having been in this field a number of years, that that is probably the farthest from the truth. It often tends to be very divorced from any notion of uh, the origin of evil. And uh, it tends to be uh, more so their understanding comes from theories, uh, often secular theories, that have been baptized uh, with a few verses thrown in and uh, a few Christian terms. So, but we want to look a little closer at this and, and your worldview and your associated theory of origin, and we're going to look at what the theory of origin has to do with the whole realm of counseling. Um, and But your worldview and associated theory of origin significantly influence one's understanding of the causes of human problems. Uh, I think that goes with, without saying. And so how you understand the world and how you understand uh, how life came to be and how evil came to be then has tremendous implications for how you approach counseling, obviously. Uh, and as believers, <clears throat> we need to develop an understanding of the causes. Uh, that's the, that would be the term etiology. Uh, that's a professional term. And by that, we mean the causes of problems. Uh, the etiology of human problems uh, or disorders. Uh, that and it should proceed from a biblical worldview, obviously, for us as Christians. That's where we get our understanding from, or at least should get our understanding from. But again, I'm probably preaching to the choir here. Uh, unfortunately, most of the time, our under, and for Christian professional counselors, most of the time the understanding is based upon some type of secular theory. So when a person comes in uh, and... <clears throat> They're having difficulties. They'll see this as a, a reinforcement of maladaptive behavior or uh, it's cognitive distortions uh, or it might be a discrepancy between the ideal self versus the real self uh, or uh, perhaps some type of internal conflict between 
the superego and the ego, uh, any of those, and those are all couched in particular theories. Well, what does Scripture have to say about this? And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the origin of evil. So, in our understanding of this, should take into account all of Scripture, and I think go beyond the simplistic answer of sin. Um, I am. I like some of the stuff that the Nuthetic Counseling approach. Uh, some of their ideas, um, but uh, I think where they fail is that they often don't go beyond just the will and the issue of sin. And I think you have to beg the question, what were the influences that led to that sin? Um, and we have to address those things as well. And uh, so we have to go beyond just the simplistic answer of sin. So, uh, we can, obviously, develop an ultimate explanation of human problems based on the Bible that is comprehensive, practical, and meaningful. By the way, I'm going to put in a shameless plug here. Um, I teach at Taylor University, Fort Wayne, and uh, we are doing something that probably, I don't know that any Christian college campus has ever done. Um, but uh, every, all of our freshman students are given the opportunity to go through the steps to freedom. And we're very intentional about that. Uh, I have trained faculty in using that to work with students. Um, <clears throat> we have spiritual formation as one of our three different focuses, one of our three different foci. We have applied learning, very practical, hands-on approach. Spiritual formation. And the formation paradigm that we use is the uh, uh, basically based upon the work of Neil Anderson, uh, which I'm sure that you're familiar with. Um, and right now we're bringing on what's being called community leadership development, uh, where we are also look at not just transforming individuals, but transforming whole communities uh, as well. But all of our students are given the opportunity to go through the, the steps to freedom at some point. Uh, and in our counseling program, I developed the, the counseling program um, that is oriented around this approach that, that uh, you are learning here. Um, and uh, we are very explicit about that. Um, and in addition, <clears throat> for example, in our counseling core, the first class that the students have to take uh, is discipleship counseling. Uh, and uh, that's the first class that they take. And that's where we build a biblical theory of people helping uh, right there in that class. Uh, so, <clears throat> and so when I say that we build one that's comprehensive, practical, and meaningful, we do that very literally uh, in our counseling program. And we teach this to students. In fact, what I'm presenting to you today is also what I present in class. Uh, so, <clears throat> well, here is our central thesis of our Actually, this is the central thesis of our whole counseling program, and we maintain this consistently throughout the whole program. Um, human problems uh, or disorder results from the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil on the human soul and spirit. And so uh, that's our central thesis, and we carry that through uh, regardless of whether that is whether we're talking about abnormal psychology in terms of the mental disorders. Uh, or whether mar it's marriage and family counseling, or crisis counseling, or addictions counseling, 
regardless of which class it is, that's very consistent. And so our whole program is built around that notion because as I developed the program, what I began to understand just in terms of my own journey is that I, I needed a guide to, to help me uh, as I worked with people and I needed to understand very clearly where human problems come from. And so that's our central thesis and that's kind of our central thesis for these lectures to today. So again, human problems result from the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil on the human soul and spirit. And by the way, I know that the devil doesn't really look like that, but that's the best picture I could come up with. So just can't get a snapshot of that booger. Okay, let's begin to uh, look at the origin of evil, and we're going to do a worldview review, and I know this is a review for you, but I want to give it application to what we're looking at today. So we want to look at uh, what a worldview is, and uh, James Sire, who wrote um, The Universe Next Door, uh, which is probably considered to be the almost the standard textbook uh, in terms of a Christian worldview in many circles, he wrote this, he said, a worldview is a basic set of presuppositions that we hold about the basic makeup of our world or reality. So it's a basic set of presuppositions that we hold about the basic makeup of our world or reality. Now a presupposition, by definition, is something that is not testable, it's not verifiable empirically, it is something that is presumed uh, not necessarily based upon evidence, we just assume it to be true. It's what what is called an a priori assumption. That's before the fact. And uh, all people have those presuppositions. Um, and I don't care what field they're in, what their training is, everybody holds to a basic worldview. Uh, so, and worldviews are innately uh, metaphysical, innately spiritual, um, and there's no way around that. Uh, even an atheistic worldview, obviously, says that there is no God, uh, and a naturalistic worldview coupled with that that says there is nothing beyond the material world uh, except nothing beyond the material world, and the only thing that exists is that which is material. Um, that, that actually makes claims about the... Uh, the metaphysical, that which goes beyond the physical by saying that it doesn't exist. Uh, so it is innately spiritual. It's innately, in that sense, it is innately religious, even uh, the atheistic worldview. Um, so uh, all other systems then and relationships of humanity uh, are, are a reflection of our worldview. Uh, everything else flows out of that worldview. How you order your world, uh, how you govern the world, how you relate to the world, the material world, how you relate to that spiritual dimension as well, all of that gets governed by your worldview. Um, so worldview is extremely important, and uh, Dr. Tim Warner has probably been one of the more profound influences on me in the development of a worldview, and he covers this very well. So a lot of what you're hearing today, I'm sure, is just a repeat of him. And I can't do it as well as he, so you'll have to forgive me for that. But Worldviews include three possible dimensions of reality. Let me back up. Worldviews include three possible dimensions of reality. Um, and these are, let me give you the dimensions. 
the transcendent dimension, and this is the dimension in which the supreme being exists, the highest God exists. Uh, you have the middle spirit dimension, uh, and this is the domain of lesser spirit beings. And then you have the physical dimension, and this is the domain that is governed by uh, the physical laws, the, the natural laws. Um, and uh, uh, in fact, Paul Hebert has written about this, and uh, Paul Hebert's a missiologist, uh, teaches at the Trinity, uh, and uh, he has written about this in a number of different places. But all worldviews uh, can include various elements of those dimensions uh, or, or will uh, have uh, one or more of those dimensions. So those are the three possible dimensions of a worldview. One of the things I've learned in teaching is that it's always good to check to make sure that everybody's on board. So let me ask, any questions so far? Again, this is a review, so... Okay, everybody's with me? Good. Are we awake this morning? We're sharp and ready to go? I'm not sure I am. Okay. Well, these planes or these dimensions, please understand, they're not separate and distinct from each other, per se, but they are interacting with each other. And I like to use an analogy here of a cake versus Kool-Aid. Now, uh, if you bake... Uh, Probably more of you ladies bake than more of us guys, but if you bake, my wife makes wonderful cakes. My favorite cake is a red velvet cake. You know, that's kind of kind of a southern thing, so we don't come across it too much up in the north, uh, but occasionally we do. And my wife makes a wonderful red velvet cake, so she makes it every year for my birthday. But uh, you know, if you bake cakes, that uh, the cakes have different dimensions. So you put maybe three layers on there, or four layers, however many layers that you have, and you separate them by the frosting. Well, worldviews don't operate. These dimensions don't operate in that way. They're not distinctly layered upon each other uh, and separate from each other, but they're interacting. So a better analogy would be if I had a pitcher of water up here and I had three packets of Kool-Aid and one's the transcendent dimension, one is this middle spirit dimension, and the other is this uh, physical dimension, and I just began pouring these packets of Kool-Aid into the pitcher. Now, can you look in that picture and say, there's the grape Kool-Aid right there, or there's the cherry right there? Obviously not. You would not be able to separate them. Uh, and that's how these dimensions operate within our worldview. Uh, and so they're not clearly distinct. They are not non-interacting, uh, but they suffuse the whole of reality. Um, so that's a, perhaps a better analogy than thinking. Sometimes I have found that uh, when I present that people think that somehow these are like uh, distinct layers from each other, and that's not necessarily true. Some of the graphics I use might imply that, but I don't have any other way to graphically illustrate that. So uh, maybe someday I'll come across a better uh, graphic scheme. But um, What are the worldviews? Well, Let's kind of do a review, okay? I teach a course at Taylor. It's called Foundations of Christian Thought. And in that course, 
we teach about the various worldviews. And uh, we specifically focus on how the Christian, the biblical worldview, is superior, obviously, to all the others. And uh, But we teach about pantheism, and uh, we teach about uh, naturalism, uh, and uh, uh, actually we break uh, the secular worldviews down into naturalism and atheistic existentialism. We're not going to do that today, but uh, we also teach about animism. As well, so let's kind of go through these. And in pantheism, ultimate reality—how you define reality—is an impersonal spiritual force. Uh, the Hindus call it Brahma, um, and that's that spirit force. And all is spirit. The material world really is just an illusion in this worldview. Uh, they would call it Maya. Uh, that it's it's just an illusion. Uh, so the physical world really just doesn't exist in that worldview. It's really, again, just an illusion. And so righteousness in a pantheistic worldview, and Buddhism comes out of a pantheistic worldview, uh, as well as aspects of Hinduism, and there are other uh, religious uh, religions uh, based upon a pantheistic worldview. But Buddhism would stress that the righteousness is defined by not caring. Uh, you want to remove yourself from this world uh, and become more and more united with this Brahma, uh, this spirit force. Uh, so uh, humans then become just an emanation. They're, uh, if, you, uh, if you bake uh, bread, for example, and you have a big batch of dough there, and you pinch off a little piece of dough to make a roll, uh, that would, in essence, be an emanation. It's a piece off of the mother lump of dough, for example. And so humans, in this sense, just become an emanation, of a piece of this universal spiritual force in that sense. A lot of New Age religions, uh, New Age ideas, are based upon uh, this very this worldview. Yes, ma'am. Uh, in, in this worldview, uh, righteousness is defined by uh, removing yourself from this world and caring too much about anything in this in, in this existence, an earthly existence, uh, and uniting with this universal spiritual force. And that's how righteousness is defined in this worldview. Now, the next worldview. And you can see here that pantheism has both a physical plane and basically the transcendent and spirit plane are wrapped up into one. Um, now, let me say that there, there are no cultures that have a pure worldview. All cultures are syncretistic. They're, they're a blend of two or more worldviews. Um, but uh, uh, in pure pantheism, you would have both the transcendent and spirit plane kind of wrapped up into one. So, <clears throat> in animism, animistic cultures believe typically they believe in a supreme being, but that supreme being is so far removed from this world that uh, he is not accessible. He really has no bearing on what happens on a day-to-day -day basis. Um. And he's not involved 
Uh, and what dictates day-to-day life is this, this host of lesser spirits. Uh, and these are, they're very capricious. Uh, you don't know whether they're happy with you or angry with you. And uh, you have to be very careful. Uh, there are all kinds of rituals that you have to uh, abide by so that you don't invoke the wrath of these, uh, these spirits. Um, and they may be tribal spirits, uh, patron spirits. They may be ancestral spirits. Uh, they could have any a number of different functions. Uh, but uh, they require exacting ritual sacrifice and practice. Um, and uh, you have to follow that very carefully, or again, you risk uh, invoking the wrath of, of uh, these spirits. Uh, so uh, most Probably most cultures are very are animistic. Uh, it's probably the, the largest uh, worldview in terms of culture uh, across the globe. Uh, and people who live in animistic cultures uh, live in great fear. They really do. They live in great fear. So, and they also tend to be shame-bound cultures in many ways uh, as well. Uh, so, uh, that's an animistic worldview. Uh, and uh, we're seeing more and more of that uh, in uh, the states here as the, the world actually comes to us. Uh, in fact, uh, I, uh, uh, having my wife's a native New Orleanian, and I lived in New Orleans. And um, if any of you have ever been to New Orleans for an extended period of time, uh, you know that voodoo is very prominent. And it is not uncommon at different times of the calendar to actually, as you're driving down the roads, to see uh, lights out in the graveyard and rituals going on out in the graveyard. And uh, uh, you can go down to the, uh, the mall, uh, the tourist mall there, uh, the River uh, Walk Mall, and uh, there's a voodoo shop that you can go into. And it's kind of touristy, but there are very real and genuine voodoo shops uh, also in New Orleans. Um, and uh, I worked at the psych hospital there for a number of years, and sometimes we'd um, get in little old ladies, um, and uh, we would have to take their Grigri bags away from them. You know what a Grigri bag is? Um, it's, a, it's a little bag. Uh, they usually wear it around their neck or keep it somewhere on their person. Um, and it has different uh, things in it, like sometimes bones, um, rocks, locks of hair, different things like this that some type of incantation has been pronounced over. Uh, and it's supposed to ward away sickness and evil spirits. And, um, sort of like a, almost like a good luck charm in many ways. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a fetish. Uh, fetishes, it contains fetishes. Uh, but it's a grigri bag. Um, and uh, there, there's a saying in New Orleans uh, that uh, when... when um, Something is a bad thing, or some uh, something might uh, frustrate you, uh, or irritate you, or cause something bad to happen. They say that'll put the grits in your grigri, and uh, it you know kind of interfere with the power of the grigri there. So, but uh, that's becoming this is actually becoming more and more common. Uh, there's a good bit of animism actually in New Age, uh, and uh, contacting uh, spirit guides and so forth. Uh, and so we're seeing this more and more. Um, so it's becoming more and more prominent. Um, that's, uh, that's animism. Uh, now, in secularism, 
which is the dominant uh, worldview of our culture. Uh, we live in a secular society, and this would include both naturalism and what we would call atheistic existentialism. Naturalism simply is the notion that everything has a natural explanation and only the material world exists, and there is nothing else. There is no supernatural dimension, nothing that goes beyond the natural. Atheistic existentialism says that it presumes naturalism, but it says that then we become the measure of all things, humans do, and that's sort of on an individual basis, so that what happens is that the individual determines their own sense of right and wrong, and there are no absolutes, and it becomes very relativistic at that point. Um, and in a secular worldview, reality is composed, again, of only the material dimension. Every event then has a natural explanation, and humans are only physical. Uh, I like to say that in this worldview, humans are reduced down to just stuff. And that's all that we are. Um, and that's the dominant approach, by the way, to addressing human problems in our culture in many ways, particularly when we talk about many of the mental disorders uh, that uh, ultimately becomes an issue of just stuff in this culture. And so uh, if the problem, if there is a problem, then it's because there's a problem in the stuff from this worldview. Uh, and the only way then to address that problem is to somehow give more stuff to make changes in the stuff. And so that's the dominant approach. I worked in the psychiatric field for five and a half years. And basically, they spend a whole lot of money to give you a few pills. Uh, now, I'm not against medication when it's warranted, and I'll talk about that later on today. Um, and I don't think that we can deny the physical aspect of it. In fact, that's going to be kind of our focus today in many ways. But when we presume that as a worldview, in fact, let me just ask, and I know what your answer is going to be, we've had this approach now for over 40 years in working with human problems, are we any better off? It's getting worse. It's getting worse. And we know that. We know that. So, it's, we're not just stuff, obviously, but in a secular worldview, that's what we become. Just stuff. So, now, again, there are no perfect cultures, or perfect world cultures that, that have just a perfect worldview in terms of subscribing to one worldview, pure worldview. But all cultures are syncretistic. They blend the worldviews. So if we think about American Christianity, um, I would say that this perhaps is the dominant worldview, Christian secularism. And this was my worldview for a long time. And uh, it's a syncretistic worldview. And in this worldview, God does exist. In fact, he may even be worshipped. The material world is real. But what's missing? Which dimension is missing from that? That middle spirit dimension is the one that's missing. Uh, Paul Hebert has uh, called this the excluded middle. Um, and uh, he... Uh, 
he may sort of went on his own journey in this and began to understand that uh, as a missiologist when he went to India that there were things that his training just not just did not prepare him for in fact his own understanding there were things that he encountered that his own understanding he just could not comprehend and he was not prepared to address and certainly had no answers for some of the questions that were being addressed by the things that he encountered. In fact, he, he wrote this in one of his articles. He said, The reason for my uneasiness with the biblical and Indian worldviews should now be clear. I had excluded the middle level of supernatural, but this worldly beings and forces from my own worldview, that middle spirit dimension. As a scientist, I had been trained to deal with the empirical world in naturalistic terms. As a theologian, I was taught to answer ultimate questions in theistic terms. For me, the middle zone did not really exist. Unlike Indian villagers, I had given little thought to spirits of this world, to local ancestors and ghosts, or to the souls of animals. For me, these belonged to the realm of fairies, trolls, and other mythical beings. Consequently, I had no answers to the questions they raised. Now, he's not saying that ancestral spirits and uh, ghosts and spirits of animals actually exist, but these were phenomenon, obviously, that he uh, was encountering among the people that he worked with, and he had no answers for the questions that, that they raised. That was exactly what I dealt with, and it was not long, actually, af after my sort of Damascus Road experience, and I'd uh, read some of Anderson's stuff, and I was working with a gal, and uh, she was uh, hearing voices who would tell her to go witness, but uh, which sounds like a good thing, except that this voice was telling her to go witness to dangerous people in extremely dangerous places and was putting her at great risk. Um, and so I began to think, well, maybe this is... Uh, this is something actually demonic, and I, so I began to, I suggested uh, walking her through the steps to freedom, and she was very open to that, uh, and as uh, we began to say the first prayer, all of a sudden, uh, she, her hand came up to her throat, and she just made these sort of guttural choking noises, and it, all she could do was point to her throat, and it wasn't me. But the Holy Spirit really impressed upon me at that point, and I think gave me the courage that I needed at that point to, and I just put my hand on her shoulder and said, in the name of Jesus, I, I bind you, uh, enemy of the Lord, and I command you to release her right now. And she began to talk, and she described it as though, you know, a, an icy cold hands just grabbed her throat, and literally she could not talk. She could not talk. Uh, probably a spirit of, of mutism. Well, that has a way of shaking up your world, obviously, when you encounter something like that. And, and, uh, but I think the Lord actually kind of timed that for me in my own journey. And that was a very important sort of a watershed moment for me when I began to realize that uh, human problems are not just the result of problems in the stuff. There's obviously something much, much more uh, with what we're dealing with here. So... The truly biblical Christian worldview. God exists, obviously. 
He is involved in time and space. He is the triune God and he rules over time and space. But these spirit beings also inhabit this middle spirit dimension. Some of them remain loyal to God. We call them angels. Uh, and some of them remain loyal to God. And some of them are opposed to God and they follow after the chief angel of rebellion that we call Lucifer or Satan. Uh, they are fallen angels and they oppose God and they oppose God's people and they wreak havoc uh, in our world. Um, and I had to come to terms with that dimension of reality. It was not on my radar before. I just didn't see it. Um, and uh, I think looking back now, uh, there probably were a, a good number of cases that, that uh, I... Uh, worked with in the psych hospital back in, in those days that uh, probably were demonization. And I simply just did not recognize it because it was not a part of my radar. Um, only once did I ever even consider that possibility, uh, and I actually ran scared to death. Uh, so uh, uh, I just didn't, didn't address it. But the, the physical dimension is also very real, and we need to be careful that we don't exclude that. And even when we come to the human person, we are both material and immaterial. Um, we are body and we are soul spirit as well. So we need to be careful that we don't go the route of the pantheist uh, and exclude that physical dimension. Uh, that would be what pantheists would do. Because again, in their worldview, it's just illusion. It doesn't really exist. So, the biblical worldview, obviously, is a supernatural warfare worldview. We are at war. There is never not a time when we are, there is never a time when we are not at war. We are always at war. And the people that you and I work with are there. They are having the problems that they are having because they are casualties in this war. That is very consistent. Um, and what we do um, is spiritual warfare. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. So the biblical worldview is a supernatural warfare worldview. So again, we ask the question, what is the origin of disorder, the origin of human problems? And, oops, moving too far ahead. In a biblical worldview, disorder or disharmony or human problems are ultimately the result of satanic opposition. Um, we are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And scripture records all three. Ultimately, it is Satan who co-opts the world and the flesh in his battle against, against uh, God's kingdom. Um, and we'll talk more about that. He conscripts the world and the flesh in his opposition to God. And again, people need help because they are casualties in this war. Alright, any, any questions at this point? Yes. 
there may be animistic cultures that I'm not familiar with that uh, don't have the concept of a supreme being, but of all the ones that I'm familiar with, they do. Now, again, he tends he tends to not be involved. Um, he is remote. He's so transcendent that he's remote. He's inaccessible. You don't have a personal relationship with uh, the supreme being. For example, in traditional, there is no tradition, no one traditional Chinese religion, um, but there are many. But the vast majority of them hold to uh, the concept of, of, of Sheng Di, and Sheng Di is that supreme being. Um, New Age is a blend of many religions, um, and it tends to be a blend of pantheism and animism. Uh, and so they may hold to the concept of a supreme being, but it may be more of the pantheistic idea that if there's that universal spiritual force. And, and again, in pantheism, you don't have a relationship with that universal spiritual force. It's not a person. It doesn't have personhood. Um, it's just a universal spiritual force. Certain gentlemen in the back. Yeah, I have. And actually, it's a blend of a couple. It's actually, in the class that I teach on worldviews, we have students to watch that movie, and we examine it because it's actually an excellent example of a postmodern worldview. Yeah, there are, and the postmodern worldview will actually blend other worldviews because in a postmodern worldview, Basically, postmodernism um, is the notion that we can't know anything for certain, uh, and so even though there is a physical reality, we can't really know that physical reality for sure, so we can't make any absolute claims, so all truth claims are as good as any other. And so we can blend the pantheistic, we can blend the animistic, and we can blend the secular, and you can be an atheist as well as a pantheist. And, you know, is it doesn't make sense, but when you understand the basis for it, uh, then you can understand a postmodern worldview. Yeah, good observation. Uh, I believe I saw a hand over here. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It depends on which guru, guru you're talking about as to what they emphasize. So, Eleanor. Um, Islam tends to be, in terms of its expression, it's a theistic worldview, uh, but it tends to be syncretized with a lot of anim animism. And so you have folk Islam, yeah, where they hold to a lot of animistic practices and they believe in a lot of magical practices like the Eye of Fatima. If you ever go into Islamic cultures, you'll often see little beads and they look like little eyes. Or you may see a hand with an eyeball in the middle um, and uh, it's to ward off the evil eye and different things like that. So uh, they, they do, you, you do see a lot of that uh, in Islam, so... Uh, it, uh, Islam is, is basically a theistic worldview, 
but it is often syncretized with animism. Yeah. What's that? We have written. Oh, the red dot. That's Hinduism. That's Hinduism. Thought I saw another hand. Yes, sir. Uh, I don't think I've ever looked very closely at that, but I would say that uh, most cultures do have the notion of uh, sacrifice in some way as being necessary for redemption or righteousness, and uh, that they would be perversions, obviously, of the truth. So, yes, I know in in New Orleans uh, they do make sacrifices. Uh, usually, it's a chicken, or in some cases, it may be a goat. Uh, in voodoo. Yes, it's an interesting observation. In in uh, in terms of religions, most of your formal religions actually do a very good job or honestly do a very good job, but what they do is they address questions, they address ultimate questions, questions of, of the afterlife, typically. Um, but where they often fail, uh, and where animism then comes in, animism actually uh, offers answers, not real answers, but some answers, to questions of daily life. Um, you know, uh, this has been one of the things that uh, missionaries have struggled with uh, in terms of uh, you can go into a culture and uh, bring Christ to the culture and Christ gets you in heaven. Christ gives meaning to your life. Uh, but in the issue of what do I do when my child is sick, um, the often what happens is that they will resort then back to the animistic practice. And so your high religions, those are your formal religions, they, they tend to be divorced from what are called often the low religions or the folk religions, uh, and that's why we often see a blending of them. Uh, and so the challenge is, and this is why material like this that you're learning here is so important, is how do we take Christianity? Does Christ offer uh, solutions for my struggles in the here and now? The answer is yes. He obviously does, um, but we have not, historically, we've not done a very good job of presenting that to people and, and, and offering that to people. So, yes, sir. I uh, worked with a case two years ago uh, a former student, uh, it was her daughter, uh, and uh, uh, this, uh, my student's sister had died two, year, two years previously, and uh, it was her daughter's favorite aunt, and they were very close. And uh, so this was a six-year-old girl, she was four when her aunt died, and the uh, girl uh, would tell her mommy that she was talking, she would talk to her aunt after she had died, uh, and that she could see her aunt uh, when she had died. 
And uh, I think scripture is pretty clear. In fact, we read in the story of, of, uh, of Lazarus uh, that uh, once we cross that threshold that we don't return, uh, you know, barring any type of miracle where Christ called, you know, Christ called Lazarus back, a different Lazarus, uh, Christ called, called Lazarus back. But uh, once we cross that threshold, we, we don't return. Um, and so I worked with this uh, little girl and uh, basically, it was a deceptive spirit. Um, and uh, I think uh, frequently that's, that's, I think that's what people see in those cases is, as a deceptive spirit, a spirit masquerading as the deceased person. Um, so that's, that's my guess as to what's going on in those cases. I don't know if anybody else wants to put their two cents in on that. So, yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, it, that's a case, I think, where God supernaturally in, intervened. Uh, he, he mentioned the case of, of, of uh, Saul seeking the witch of Endor, uh, bringing back the spirit of, of Samuel. Uh, and uh, what's interesting, though, is that the witch was surprised at that. So she didn't expect that. What she expected was the deceptive spirit, but God supernaturally intervened and actually brought back Samuel. Thank you. We need to move on because I'm never going to be able to cover this. And we could talk about this one all day, but let, let's kind of let's uh, move ahead here. All right, let's begin to look at the origin of disorder. And I'm using disorder in a very, very broad term. Um, I teach abnormal psychology in our campus. And uh, I use the term disorder rather than the term mental illness. Mental illness comes out, I think that term really comes out of a naturalistic worldview, and particularly a medical model. And I don't want to ignore the physical, but I will use the term disorder. And so I, and I attach that, that whole term, that issue of mental disorder or psychological disorder to the concept of disorder in general. So let's begin to look at this. Uh, again, your theory of origin has tremendous implications for your understanding of the causes of disorder. Um, and, uh, for example, if uh, a person accepts the theory of evolution, then in terms of what is defined as abnormal is based upon a normative definition. That is what everybody else is experiencing. What is the norm? And so it becomes actually sort of a relativistic standard. This is really important in, in my field if, if you work in the professional mental health field because I mean, that's, that's the, the basis of the definitions of abnormality. Um, but a belief actually in the biblical creation account uh, in which we are designed by God, then it would presume that disorder at disharmony, human problems, are a departure from the original design. And that's a very different way of thinking about that because in that sense there is an ideal design uh, that we see in our forebears of Adam and Eve um, 
and that we see restored in Christ, um, and that that is how we should function. And so what I tell my students is that in reality, there aren't a few people who are abnormal, but that all of humanity is abnormal from a biblical perspective. We are all abnormal, and abnormality is a, is, exists on a continuum, and we all are somewhere on that continuum of abnormality. And uh, the further implication of that, then, is that, uh, that when it comes to people who suffer, even with the very serious mental disorders, that we should hold the attitude, but by the grace of God, there's a lot. Because we are all vulnerable to moving down that continuum. Because we're all abnormal. Um, let's look further at um, the creation account here. And in Genesis 1-2, we read about the Spirit of God who is hovering over the deep. The earth is unformed, um, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the deep, and the unformed earth here is portrayed as a sort of chaotic maelstrom. Um, it is, in its portrayal, particularly in the original Hebrew, it is hostile and uh, to life. Uh, it is unpredictable. Uh, in fact, there are some scholars, and I would uh, uh, refer you to uh, Gregory Boyd's God at War uh, for the background uh, of that. He does an excellent job. Uh, now, I don't accept all of Gregory Boyd's ideas about how God operates in terms of his sovereignty, uh, but just in terms of the background, uh, of this, I w it's an excellent, excellent work. But uh, you have this unformed earth, and it's portrayed as chaotic and maelstrom. It's it's a watery deep. Uh, in fact, uh, when the group of seventy uh, Jewish scholars um, uh, decided to back in even before Christ was on the scene, decided to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek, the term that they used for the watery deep was the abyss. That was the term that they used, and you see that term also in Revelation as the abode of the demonic. And, and uh, so it, it's clear that this is something that is opposed to, to God, and that's how they thought of it. Uh, there are some scholars, who, and Boyd is one of them, who actually think that uh, because of the language that's used in this passage, that... Uh, uh, that language is also used elsewhere to indicate the aftermath of a war. Uh, so, um, but what we see is that as God acts in the creation, order is wrought out of disorder. Where God acts, he always returns order to disorder. Stability and life-nurturing qualities. That's what we see in the creation account. Um, and we see uh, this idea of shalom. Um, it's often translated peace uh, in, in our English translations, but actually it's a very pregnant term. It means the highest quality of life. Uh, it is the sum of all that God intended uh, this world to be. 
So it's the highest quality of life. A good picture is actually the life of Job before Satan begins his activity, activity in Job's life. There is a harmony, there is an integrity to life um, that exists there. And that's shalom. So that is the end result of this God-wrought order. That's what we are trying to help the people that we work with achieve, is this whole notion of shalom. And it's the end result of an integrated order, uh, integrity in the created order. So what we see before the fall is there is harmony with God. God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. There is harmony within the human person. There is no sense of anxiety, no sense of shame, no sense of double-mindedness. There is harmony between humanity. We don't read that Adam and Eve had knocked down, drag out bites. You know, they got along with each other. There was harmony between humanity. Uh, and there was harmony between humanity and the rest of the creation. God actually parades uh, the animals before Adam to name them, and he had no fear of them and had no need to fear them at that point. So, um, and in the good creation, humanity knew only good. At that point, Adam and Eve did not know evil. The Hebrew word for good is tov. They only knew good. And that was all that there was. They didn't know it as good because there was nothing to contrast uh, with it with at that point. But they only knew good. And so, you know the rest of the story in terms of the fall, and the fall of man, sometimes when we portray the creation account, it, Satan really almost becomes a bit player. Um, but in the Hebrew way of thinking, he's very prominent uh, in, 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 in the ancient Hebrew way of thinking in the story. Uh, and the fall of man really is an extension of the fall of Lucifer that we read about in Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. Um, and so that was the things that happened as a result of that uh, is a result of intelligent design, but in this case it would be evil intelligent design. Um, and the original sin was the sin of ascendancy, the desire to be like God. That was the temptation. And this theme of ascendancy is then repeated throughout the biblical record. We read about it again. The Tower of Babel, uh, for example, and they were literally trying to ascend into the heavens. In fact, basically what was happening there is that they were trying to ascend into not so much to, uh, to somehow uh, relate to God, the Most High God, better, but to relate to the, uh, in essence, the powers of the air. Uh, what they were building was a ziggurat. Most scholars think that. Uh, in, in fact, ziggurats were known to be religious uh, temples in essence, and only certain people you could go only up, you know, certain people go up so high, and other people could go up, fewer people could go up this high, and ultimately it was the king himself who was the only one who was allowed to go up to the highest uh, place on the temple and would meet with the, whatever the, the city or the tribal or the patron deity uh, was the patron spirit. So uh, so the Tower of Babel is an example of that theme of ascendancy. And so as a result of the fall, what we see is the return of chaos uh, and our disorder. Um, 
and it was reintroduced back into the creation by satanic design. And the fall resulted in this notion of disintegration with God. Uh, there is now distance between God and, and humanity, or disharmony between God and humanity. A disintegration or disharmony within the individual. Uh, there's the experience of shame and fear that Adam and Eve now have. Uh, that sense of double-mindedness. And now the physiology uh, at this point now begins to work against them. And it's called now the flesh. So we are at war within our own flesh uh, in that sense. There's also a disintegration between humanity. When God confronts Adam and Eve, uh, what does when God confronts Adam? Adam says, the woman you gave me. So in essence, he blames Eve and God. Uh, for his own sin. So we begin to see this, and then, of course, the first story we read after they are kicked out of the garden is the, uh, the murder of uh, Abel by Cain. Um, and now there's also disintegration between humanity and the rest of creation. Uh, we see that Adam has to uh, till the ground by the sweat of his brow now, uh, and uh, now there is also need to fear. Uh, the animals, uh, uh, or at least many of them, particularly the wild animals. And in fact, in, in Scripture, those are often portrayed, the domain of the wild animals are often portrayed as a, a part of the domain of Satan. Uh, we see this, for example, in the account of Mark, uh, where he records Christ going into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, because it says he was in the wilderness uh, to be tempted by Satan, and it was with the wild animals. Um, and so uh, there is an alignment there, and uh, so it's kind of interesting. Um, and uh, in the after the fall, humanity now knows both good and evil. So Satan did have a kernel of truth in what he said. Um, the Hebrew term is ra. Uh, it can also be translated calamity. So the fall, in the fall, what happened is supernatural evil, or Lucifer, introduced both also a moral evil into this world. That is the fact that we choose to do evil as moral agents. Um, and natural evil. Uh, so tornadoes, floods. Uh, in fact, uh, we'll look uh, at this a little bit in a few minutes here, uh, that uh, uh, all of the things that we think of as calamities are really considered to be part of the domain of Satan. So, um, and what happens is now that rather than shalom, sheol, or death, the grave, the, it's the ultimate end of existence, um, is the ultimate end of chaos, so this, 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 this disorder and calamity. Biblically, death is the ending of a relationship. What happens when we die is that our souls uh, end a relationship with our bodies. In essence, uh, we would take on glorified bodies, new bodies in the resurrection, but death is the ultimate ending of this disintegration and a disintegrated existence. So, and, and death is was was Satan's ultimate weapon. Uh, so, but that's not the end of the story. Praise God! Obviously. Um, Christ then becomes the restorer of order. And what we see in the life and work of Christ, 
we see a reversal of this disordering process that Satan has sown back into our world um, and what Christ does. Think about what he does. He heals the sick. Now, why does he have a healing ministry? Uh, was it that Christ came and he came to defeat Satan and he thought, well, while I'm here, you know, it might be a good idea to heal a few folks. It wasn't that. Think about this. Christ came to undo the works of the devil. First John says that very clearly. And in his healing ministry, that was also a confrontation with the kingdom of darkness. So disease and sickness uh, was part of the domain of the kingdom of darkness. And he was confronting the kingdom of darkness. He cast out demons. That's an obvious connection with the kingdom of darkness. He stills the watery chaos. We again see this chaotic maelstrom, um, and uh, he steals it. He shows mastery over uh, an unruled, disordered nature, over natural evil. And in his truth-telling ministry, he dispels lies with truth. Um, so this is what we see in the life and work of Christ. Uh, and in his resurrection, he renders death impotent, removing Satan's ultimate weapon. Um, I want to read to you this passage in Hebrews. It's chapter 2. Uh, verses 14 and 15. And it's talking about uh, Jesus. He said, he, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from... Oh, I'm reading the wrong book. Excuse me. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. Who was that who had the power of death? That is the devil. And might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Folks, I've worked with a lot of people, and I want you to know that the root fear of all fears is the fear of death. That is still, though Satan does not have the weapon of death uh, any longer, it is now impotent uh, because of, of Christ, uh, it is still the fear of, through the fear of death, that Satan holds people in bondage. Um, so. Uh, he removes Satan's ultimate weapon. So Sheol uh, now no longer represents that threat to us. Uh, and I'm still getting ahead of myself on my slides. So in Christ, order is restored. All that was lost in the fall is now being restored in Christ. What does he do? He reconciles humanity to God. Uh, he reconciles the individual within himself even. And now, rather than being double-minded, we become single-minded, um, and we have the spirit life within us that works against the flesh, ultimately. Um, he reconciles humanity to humanity. Uh, we read this particularly in Ephesians, where he breaks down the middle wall of partition, uh, and so he reconciles us to each other, and he reconciles humanity to the rest of Creation. Romans chapter 8 uh, speaks of the creation awaits the revealing of 
of the sons of God. Uh, uh, that, that day when it will fully be restored, Isaiah 11 talks about that when the kingdom is fully come, that uh, the little child shall play at the, at the entrance of the den of adders, uh, and there will be no fear at that point uh, of the wild. Uh, and, and of uh, unruled, uh, of natural evil uh, at that point. Uh, so he will reconcile humanity to the rest of creation. Um, and that, this sort of theology has really become sort of my guiding rule and knowing where my ministry fits in, but also where there are all sorts of reconciling ministries. Um, and uh, that theology provides the basis then for what I do and that understanding. Um, so when I work with people, uh, regardless of whether they have a diagnosis or not have a diagnosis, and by the way, a diagnosis is only a label. Diagnoses don't cause schizophrenia. It doesn't cause hallucinations per se. Uh, hallucinations are schizophrenia. It's just a label. Uh, so the schizophrenia doesn't cause voices. The voices are schizophrenia. Um, and so uh, it doesn't suggest a cause. But uh, regardless of whether they have a diagnosis or, or not, um, uh, I know that they're there because of the enemies working in this world and in their life. And he is sowing disorder where God wants to restore order to that person's life and to bring shalom to that person's life. But the enemy is sowing death. The enemy is sowing death. So let me give you an overview of my approach. A biblical approach to human problems must address the fourfold grid of the world, the flesh, the devil, and soul-spirit concerns. That's a fourfold grid. Uh, and I actually use a grid, and you'll see that this afternoon. Practically, this means we have to address identity issues, we have to address bondages, uh, we have to address mind renewal, uh, teach people how to walk in the spirit rather than walk in the flesh, um, and we have to help people to develop a community of truth, uh, all of those things, and I use all of that, and I work with all of that, but additionally, we have to address issues of the flesh as well. So, sowing to the flesh or flesh sowing versus flesh soothing. Walking, uh, rather than walking the flesh, you need to walk in the spirit. Um, brain immaturity versus brain maturity. Yes, sir. I'm going to come get to that in the second presentation today. So hold your question, if you will. Um, fear bonds versus love bonds. Um, and sad versus a nutritive diet. Uh, it's actually kind of a new area that I've begun working with to some degree. SAD stands for the Standard American Diet, and that's a pretty accurate an ac acronym for it. So... So, so the conclusion again, human problems, including mental disorders, 
result from the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the human soul spirit. That's where they come from. Human problems result from the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil on the human soul spirit. Ultimately, restoration is found through reconciliation in Christ, both in the here and now and fully in the world to come. To be faithful to a biblical worldview, we must be careful that we do not frame all problems as only spiritual. Um, if you do that, that's a pantheistic worldview and not a biblical one. And scripture affirms that we are both material and immaterial, and our approach to human problems should address both. 